Greetings and indeed, salutations. Welcome to the Silence's Golden Podcast, your home for discussion, analysis, and general geekery about silent film. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And Bryce, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and very belatedly, Happy Hanukkah. Absolutely. Hope everyone has enjoyed their holiday season. Uh, we are here today to do our last episode of our first season here to round out the year with an appropriately New Year's uh, movie. What? I know. We, ta- we, we made this thematically... I know, it's shocking uh, that we would actually think through to do something like Nosferatu around Halloween and the Phantom Carriage at New Year's. The Phantom Carriage. Yes, the Phantom Carriage. For those of you who don't know, the Phantom Carriage is a classic of Swedish cinema from the silent film. The... Uh, film was directed by uh, Victor uh, Schostrom, and if you thought we mispronounced Russian and German names, my friends, get ready for a ride today with Swedish. Uh, and so we're going to be exploring Victor uh, Schostrom's uh, masterpiece here. He was himself one of the great directors of Swedish cinema. Some would consider him the greatest before uh, Ingrid Bergman uh, and his iconic films of the mid-20th century. And also... Uh Unlike any of the other directors so far, he is not just directing this movie, he's starring in it. It is. That's true. He is uh, He is the leading role as well. In fact, he will go on to star, to uh, to play in Bergman's films later in life. But as a young man, he was one of the dominant forces of his country's cinema. Uh, so the film, The Phantom Carriage, is based on a folk, on a folk tale... Uh, from Sweden. In fact, it's based on a novel of that tale. Uh, the novel itself is by Selma Lagerlof. Again, we're going to slot all this. Her novel, uh, Cork Harlan, uh, the, uh, was... The translation print- in English is, uh, thy soul shall bear witness, with an yes. exclamation point. Yes. Also, it can also just be translated as the driver or the coachman for the actual, the novel's title, I should say. Uh, the she was a Nobel Prize winner, and yeah. so was the dominant force of Swedish fiction at the time. And this is a film created by the dominant force in Swedish cinema at the time. Uh, interesting side note about that: the two of them, of course, uh, were friends, and together with another friend of their, director Moritz Stiller, uh, they are really responsible for this golden age of cinema. And Stiller. Uh, who was part of this circle, is himself responsible for the discovery of a certain uh, Greta Gustafsson, who everyone knows much more famously as Greta Garbo. Ah, there we go. So Sweden really was hugely important in cinema. It's one of those, again, great things I love about silent the silent era. It is a much more international era. Garbo, we often forget i think is swedish uh she is such an iconic force in hollywood cinema as hollywood becomes takes center stage as the dominant force of western cinema i think we forget that but she comes from this international tradition uh, like so much else in this period so this one bryce why don't we let you start with the plot and then we can uh that's just some brief context let's let you start plot and then we can dive into because there's so much so much of the Usually what I would talk about here, which of course is the uh, ins and outs of the film and tet- on a technical level in the background, uh, 
is intricately tied up with the plot because uh, there's a lot of innovative cinematic techniques going on here, uh, but they all uh, but they all play they all uh, play an important role because of the kind of story it is. It's a ghost story. It is absolutely a ghost story. Um, so one of the interesting things that this movie does that we don't really see, even though this is 1921 we don't really see it with a lot of the later ones at least not the later ones we've looked at so far um in which it is telling a story uh it, it tell it's telling its main story but there's flashbacks there's a flashback within the flashback uh so it messes with uh storytelling uh, it's experimenting with so storytelling in a non-linear sense in a way that the other films we've looked at so far have not done. Uh, but the basic summary of this uh, of this silent film is that we enter into this Swedish city and a nun is dying. Sister Edith, and Sister Edith. Uh, is looking is is asking for someone to bring her a man named David home, and as we discover, David Holm is not. Uh, you know, you're wondering why in the world is his sister crying out for a man? Uh, it is nothing illicit. It is actually, um, she has been. This man has been her project for trying to save his soul for over a year at this point. And it turns out what da who David Holm is, he's an alcoholic. And as is gonna become very apparent over the course of this, um, uh, over this, over the course of this movie, is that this is not just a retelling of a folktale, they're, re they're using this folktale to have a very um, in the U.S., we would use the phrase "pro, pro uh, uh, you know, a prohibition message." The, these are anti-alcohol um, sentiments that are very clear throughout. Here are the dangers and evils of alcohol are are exposed on screen throughout uh, throughout the movie. But David Holm is someone who had a once happy family, wife, two kids, his brother lived with him. Uh, and uh, this family could have been happy, except what is shown is that instead of taking the choice of making, uh, of having these happy moments, David takes a, uh, makes the choice over and over again for the bottle. And his family therefore struggles, they are unhappy, they are, uh, they are in want. Whereas David, on the other hand, is uh, always seems to be jovial, but that's because he's got a bottle in his hand and he is three sheets to the wind. In fact, that's where we first meet him, as he is three sheets to the wind in the middle of a cemetery with two other drunks. And they are joking around about, hey, this is an odd place to be w waiting to ding in the new year. And... They start to look around, and two of the guys start to look around. The two non-David people are looking around and going, yeah, you're right, this is a really creepy thing we've done. And, and 
but they don't leave, and David tells the story, hey, you know, I had this buddy, and he was awesome. And he would just come in, and he'd be the life of the party. And he, one year, told us a story about how the there's this thing called the phantom carriage. And the phantom carriage is the carriage that comes and picks up every soul when it dies and takes it to heaven or hell. And But the driver of the carriage is not actually death in, uh, himself, but it is the last soul to die, the soul who dies at the stroke of midnight. So the last soul to die in a year. He becomes the driver for the carriage for the next year until he is replaced. And David says, you see, that's why my friend, that's why my friend never wanted to die, uh, you know, die on New Year's Day. But you know what? Last year I heard he died on New Year's, on New Year's Eve. Oh, it's such a shame. And it, ah, well, eventually though, a messenger comes and tells David, hey, Sister Edith wants to talk to you. She needs to see you. And David waves off the messenger, uh, who uh, was a police officer, if I recall correctly. And the two drunkards, though, with him, is like, look, a, sister, a nun is calling for you. You've got to go. If Sister Edith wants to see you, you've got to go. You don't have a choice. you got to go. And David gets belligerent about it. I'm not going. And they get into a big old fight. And it's a run-of-the-mill fight to start with until one of the drunkards takes his bottle and slams it against David's chest. And David keels over dead at the stroke of midnight. And in a great, and we'll talk more about this special effect later, but in a great special effect, the phantom carriage, translucent, comes riding into the cemetery, and the soul of David, also translucent, sits up from the dead body, and the carriage pops up, and it's his friend. And he... Uh, throws back, and he throws back to it. It's like, David, you're the one who gets to relieve me. And as part of the punishment uh, for having to be this man, he also has to relive the things he's done in his life that's led him to this moment. And it's not going to be a uh, pleasant uh, trip for, for David. Uh, but uh, and his friend, his name is George. I don't think I've said that yet. Uh, but George is very much like if you, with it being the holidays, hopefully you've gotten to watch a Christmas Carol uh, here recently. Recommend George C. Scott version. Um, but George provides kind of the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future all in one. Um, and he, they go back looking at different moments of how his uh, he got thrown in jail for public drunkenness and right as he's leaving though he's taken into another cell and he finds his brother and his brother who's only a drunk because his brother has led him down this road has killed a man in a drunken brawl 
and is going to be uh, go uh, is going to have a life uh, life prison sentence for it, and so David is forced to see what uh, his actions have done to others in that sense, and he's like, all right, I'm getting myself cleaned up. I'm going to go home to my family, and I'm going to make life is going to be better. I'm make sure we're all happy. And his wife, however, while he was in the uh, in, in prison, had finally had enough. She couldn't take it anymore. More, and she took the kids and left without telling him and uh, just got out of there, you know, which is exactly what you should do if you're in an abusive situation like that. But David doesn't handle, handle that maturely in, a, in any sense understanding. In fact, he, he blames her. He gets petty again, angry again. Um, and returns to the bottle. Eventually, he comes into the crosshairs of Sister Edith, who is not a Catholic nun. She's from the Salvation Army, um, which is an interesting choice there. Um, that that's the denomination that at play here. But uh, Sister Edith is trying. Uh, her best to get David cleaned up. She tries to reunite his family. She convinces his wife to give him another chance. This is, uh, yeah, we'll talk more about this moral uh, morality, I'm sure, uh, in our post-summary discussion. Um, and ultimately, it, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work. And finally, at the, the last stage, after it falls apart again, Sister Edith's dying. And um, George takes him, uh, does does two things. One takes her to sit him to see Sister Edith, and she prays for him one more time. And then, more importantly, the last thing he do, that George does, he takes him to his wife and kids who are on their last thread. Um, his uh, David's wife cannot bear not just David anymore, but she sees life is over. She had tried to rebuild her life, and it had been taken away yet again by David. And so she decides that she's going to commit suicide, And but she can't leave her children behind. So she's also, um, as depression is wont to do, it makes her, her decisions go from bad to worse. Um, and it's not just she's going to uh, kill herself. She's going to actually feed herself and her children poison. And David... Um, begs for a chance. And George takes pity on him and allows him to go back to his body instead of being the carriage driver, allows him to go back to the body and he runs as fast as he can and he gets there, say, uh, bangs on the door and gets his wife to open up and, um, and prevents her from committing suicide by just in, walking in the room. Um, you know, he doesn't have to do anything other than just be there. But the one of the interesting lines that right at the end of the film is he's breaking down crying because he's 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 relieved he's sad you know all all the emotions at once and his wife does not know what to make of this and he has this line says um which says why which kind of asks why is he crying says no one will believe me that I want to be better um. And they agree to essentially give each other another chance and and, uh, and 
the implication is that they do, in fact, this time make it work, um, and that he does reclaim him his, his life and, and soul um, with this second, ch- with this, I guess, really third chance that he gets. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's a fascinating story, and as and as you said, we're gonna get into the technical stuff here. Uh, now we're in bird order yeah. a little bit. Uh, so, Brett, why don't you talk to us? Because uh, special effects is really important in this movie. Yeah, this is this is a really landmark film in terms of... It's, and, of course, not the first one. I mean, f- double exposure techniques create ghostly images have been a part of cinematography and photography for some time now. Uh, the Princess Anastasia uh, from Russia is famous for doing this with her pictures. Like, she would create ghostly images. So this is, a tec- this is not a new technique, but it is a famous... Te- it's it's a fa- uh, but it is a famous tech uh, technique that's being applied here, and in fact they use uh, they layered the superimpositions, uh, the devil up to four times actually to create this image of the ghostly carriage, which is falling apart, and of course led by someone in a black cloak with a scythe, and it's uh, and they purple tinted. Yep, and they purple tinted, uh, and so they it's, so it's creates this really ghostly image. Where from when you first see the carriage rolling through the fields, as uh, as David's friend talks about it, uh, to later on when it actually pulls up to the graveyard, but they also show you scenes of the carriage going to collect, going to collect souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, a rich a rich man in some disgrace shoots himself, and death goes against a woman drowns in the ocean, and the and death goes to get her. The carriage rolls through the ways, and then. The, Death gets out and goes to the bottom of the ocean floor to pick her up. Yeah, the carriage parks on top of the waters, and then the the driver walks down onto the ocean floor and goes, "Yep, yeah. there he is." Yeah, and it's both a bit funny, but also ghostly and eerie. Uh, so it's an incredibly well done technique. Of course, the interesting thing is that this ghostly element, because this is, I'm just, uh, it's very you referenced. Uh, a Christmas Carol, which was an influence on this work, Dickens strongly influenced uh, uh, the director. The it's uh, it's a Wonderful Life will later echo kind of the same notion of getting to see a world, uh, the consequences of your actions, and then uh, in the world as if you weren't there. And uh, and anyway, so he come uh, so David gets this chance to see what will happen if he continues on this road, and is given the chance to go make amends. Uh, I think it's important to note, of course, though, that Sister Edict, uh, just as a matter of setting, isn't uh, a nun. She's a sister of the, the Salvation, Salvation Army, Army. Uh, which is interesting because this is a very Lutheran country, uh, and the people help, trying to help our Salvation Army. But I think that also speaks to a bit of how this is not a what Americans would think of as an anti-alcohol tale. It certainly is, and the director, I think, did not necessarily think that as strongly, but I, I would argue he did not succeed in making a not anti-alcohol story. It still is. But it's not about how the power of God redeems this man. It's not about how he's saved through some outward grace. This is a story of a man who may be a bad man trying to be good. It may be a good man who can't help to be bad. We, It's left ambiguous. It's left to you to decide what is at the heart of David. But either way, his life is in shambles. And it is 
say he is given a chance of redemption not by God but by his friend who is driving death's carriage. His the efforts to redeem him are by the two women in his life, Sister Edith and his uh, frequently estranged wife. Uh, this is so. This is not a story of miracle of miraculous healing, and we don't know for sure that he will actually succeed in reforming this time. He's been given another chance, and he recognizes that alcohol is the problem, and that he and he says he wants to be better. Hopefully, he shall. We don't know. This is the story of a man struggling with self humiliations, with his own with the burdens of his alcoholism and his general senses i think of inferiority uh he he you know he turns to, he turns to alcohol in part you know this is not a family that has a lot you see them initially before the alcohol before he meets his friend and he turns to a life of drunkenness they don't have them they don't have much this is this but they have enough but whether or not you know he nonetheless turns to drink amidst all that so it's it's not a, it's not an anti-alcohol tale in the sense that this is some parable where uh yes he becomes uh he becomes better uh through the uh by rejecting alcohol it's a story of someone struggling with his inner demons i i i, I don't see how the director didn't intend this to be in an, <laughs> uh anything other than an anti alcohol maybe not alcohol in general but anti drunkenness uh type of uh anti alcohol film um because it's in every single moment of the of the movie so it, it's but and not i think not that it didn't be alcohol not that it was anti alcoholism per se but rather that this is a movie very much grounded in realism despite the ghost <laughs> at the heart of it, it it's, yeah there's no magic fix there's no magic fix the damage it's done to the relationships are real. The acting is, you know, very contrast to a lot of the acting we've seen and the way faces were done. Everything was made to be as real as possible. People acted as real as possible, not exaggerated. This is not a German expressionist film where mm. things are very focused by the uh, focused by shadow and uh, the and the set towards single points. This is this feel this feels like. An attempt to create real people. Um, I, I I agree with that on the acting level. I don't necessarily agree with that in terms of how, um, in terms of camera work. Um, I think the camera work, and maybe it's, it's not a surprise, is only nineteen twenty one. Um, but the camera work seems to me, anyway, to be very simplistic. The scene is set up. The characters, um, usually two or three people, um, are in the shot. They're relatively centered in the shot. Uh, I th now, it does avoid looking like a stage play, like some early American films, both in including into the talkie era. Um, but it is... This is, uh, you know, as we said, this isn't either Soviet montage. This is neither Soviet montage nor German expressionism. You know, this is, uh, but you do get, um, but the camera framing uh, of scenes is pretty simple. Uh, it does, it, which is important for then the fact that they 
uh, the way they did do makeup of trying to get realistic expression from the actors and not overacting. But because those, the acting really has to carry the movie in a way um, because the camera work isn't. Uh, the, the two things have to carry this movie is the acting and the special effect to create the phantom, uh, the phantom carriage. Um, because I don't think the, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't mean this is a bad thing. It's just very different than what we've seen. Well, I think, I mean, one, it's 1921, of course. Yeah. But I think even for 1921, like the very, made it, this film made a very strong effort for the sets to be realistic. Like this was set in the city. I was actually, uh, I was reading, reading here. It actually had a very deep focus for the time. Like he, he strove to have a very deep focus for the camera so that the background was as clear as the foreground. And that was unusual for uh, the time. So, yeah, he, as I said, he does avoid. Yeah, as I said, I didn't. Wasn't mean that um, the work was plain. Um, it, it, they, it does not look like a stage play. Mm. Um, but everything is centered, and um, you know, there's no, uh, there's no using the doorways like in Nosferatu to create the uh, the otherworldly frameness mm -hmm. of even just a simple hallway. Um, there, um, but it is close. You are in the scene, uh, and and the set uh, is realistic. Uh, I just was simply remarking on the fact that the camera work itself is not the how to frame shots of moving cameras. There, are, this, the cameras are pretty static. Um, There's actually hand-moved cameras involved in, in the film. I'm not saying they're not there. I'm just saying most of the movie feels like a... That's fair. Uh, a, ...a static camera in a pretty simple scene. Um, but again, they avoid... But they did avoid creating stage play. They were in a room. Well, this is the room. They did... Uh, but the, the scene was shot, simply. The, the interesting thing is, and I think one of the reasons why it's so uh, so easy to, to move on from, from the filming part, so easy for us to have this argument whether or not, though, this is really an anti-Hocalypse play and everything, is because it was so thoroughly re-edited when it came to America. Uh, it was... Uh, it was filmed under the name. It was uh, shown under the film uh, "The Stroke of Midnight," mm -hmm. and it was completely recut to eliminate the stories within the stories. It became much more narrative-driven and to play up. What is it about American film companies that have always thought Americans can't keep up with a complicated film? They think we're stupid, Bryce. Yeah, apparently they do. They're wrong. They are. Americans, you are not stupid. No, Americans are. Americans. I, I speak else. from personal experience because I am a proud American. We are not stupid. Well, good. I'm glad that you have that patriotic <laughs> fervor there. But more to the point, you know, cinema goers anywhere are capable of more complex experiences. But you always have these people going, "Oh, well, we want to make as much money as possible, so we want to make it as simple as possible." And that is, of course, the wrong attitude to take. Um, you know. Make good films, make good stories. People can follow it, and mm -hmm. they will they will come to it. Uh, so, so Americans never actually really saw this film as it was intended to be. Uh, we now have it in a, in a restored original form. This is what we watched. We watched, of course, the Criterion Collection's uh, rendition of it. But it is 
it was it was completely cut away. And those are the thing, those things that those things are what make the difference. This film relies on not just ghostly effects, but an intermittent narrative. Uh, you are the out. You are you of course are watching the film, but so is the main character. David is right there with you, watching what unfolds. So we have many ways have his perspective as we watch some of these scenes. I want to I want to play on the talk about a bit the, the notion that it's not clear what kind of man David is. We're getting to watch this and hopefully see some redemption for him. It's not clear. This is not Scrooge waking up on Christmas Day, uh, clearly redeemed. We're not sure, but I want to talk about that for just one more moment because you see that in the film. I want to particularly highlight the second attempt by his wife to leave him. The women in here are strong-willed. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to make that clear. David is awful to everyone in this movie. That's why he needs to needs this intervention. Sister Edith, who has done nothing but try to help him, he dismisses, he berates, he humiliates. He is not a good person to this person who's done nothing but be nice to him. His wife ever patient, finally left him over alcoholism, and he blamed her. They were reunited and reconciled, and then it all started again. And I would also like to say, she, they were reconciled. His wife was not really enthusiastic here, because she was looking at, I have saved myself, and I have saved my children mm -hmm. by getting away from him, and I have built what life I can build, and I'm having to give it all up so that he can wreck it again. She has a, some very clear reservations about doing mm -hmm. this, and I really sympathize with her at this moment, and she, really saw that as this is some 1921 morality right here. Well, she's again. This is and it's from Sister Edith, who who blames herself, and mm -hmm. that is clear in the movie. This is not like oh, she, I did my best. It's like I have done something terrible. I should not have done that, and I need to redeem. And I need to talk to him. And make and make this better somehow before I die. Yeah, Sister Edith at least did recognize it. Yeah, but retroactively yeah. that she had made a mistake there. But in the scene, so let's let's talk about the scene. I think it's the most dramatic scene in the film, which is when his wife and he's come home drunk and he's braiding his beard. He has he has he has a consumption, tuberculosis, and he has a habit of coughing on people, and he starts trying to cough on the children. Oh, and when he goes to the uh, kitchen to get himself a drink. Uh, she locks the kitchen door, starts to dress the children, and tries to leave again. It's like, enough. And he gets an axe from under the sink. He goes very I, shining on the door. Yep. There's uh, Johnny. Yep, and arguably this scene influences the later scene in The Shining. But either way, he starts trying to break down the door. She's trying to get the children mm -hmm. dressed so they can leave, and she collapses onto the floor. Like, she's had some kind of heart attack or something. And the man who just a moment ago was trying to break down the door and terrifying her and the children, suddenly the good man comes out if there's another way. He goes to get her some water and tries to hold her. He eventually goes back to berating her, I think, while he uh, while he holds her. Uh, but either way, he does go back to being his awful self after this scene. But nonetheless, this one moment, the David who cares about his wife comes out for a brief moment. And this, and this is... is well, this is this is I think highlights the internal struggle in David. Again, we don't know if this is a good man who has bad things in him or a bad man who has good things in him. We don't know. And this scene I think captures the crux of this. Do we think that the 
the true David is the one who went and help, tried to help his wife who'd collapsed, or do we think the true David is the one who was trying to break down the door? Um, and we see this throughout the movie, though, that David, the the kind of shiny, the, the moments where something good might break through, shine through, um, all come in response to him seeing in a way that he can't ignore um, how his actions have done, have caused pain to someone he loves. Uh, it was first, it was his brother who was going to be going to jail for uh, for, uh, for it, it was a long prison term, presumably life, uh, for killing a man uh, in a, bar, a drunken bar fight. And the only reason his brother was a drunk was because David was a drunk. David led him down that road very specifically. Uh, you get this moment with his wife fainting as she's trying to get the kids out. And then, of course, when his wife uh, almost commits triple suicide um, at the end of the movie. That's uh, So um, those are the times when David, and, uh, you know, in that, uh, when David shows a desire to change is when he can't ignore the... Um, the ramifications of his, of his actions, and and I'm not sure what that means morally. That you can't realize it before something dramatic happens that you're causing pain, but that's definitely the moments when he attempts to change. Yeah, which is, which is another one. It's this all left very ambiguous. Ambiguous at the end, uh, you know, whether or not he's actually reformed. Uh, because he has caused all this real damage, mm -hmm. and he has tried to be better before, uh, so we don't know whether or not it worked. Yeah, the um, though I I would argue again. I think sister sister Edith's big mistake is well, if I can just reunite him, him and his family, everything will be fine. Except David wasn't in a plate. Like she didn't get David better and then reunite them. Uh, David was still a drunk when mm -hmm. she reunited them. And it didn't fix anything because that wasn't the problem. <laughs> um, and, and at the end of the day, David had to want to be better. Yeah. If we, if there is any redemption in this movie, it's because David wanted to be better by the end. Yeah. We don't know whether that sticks. But for once, David actually wants to be better. And I think it's the first time in the movie that we see this genuinely coming from him rather than coming from elsewhere. Yeah. Which I think, again, is what separates it from the moralism of the American anti-alcohol stories where there is a little a good bit of do sex machina and and uh you're redeemed by the fact this I mean that the reason there's a reason triple a has one of its 12 steps of accepting that only a higher power can save you it's that is a very American attitude toward alcoholism that is not what happens here um no and I and he's you know David wants to be better at the end you know, I, I have to quote a, you know a famous psychiatrist um you know, as they say say on TV, uh, the mere fact uh, the mere fact that you recognize the problem means you are not too far gone. I believe that was uh, Van Pelt. Oh, Lucy Van Pelt. Yeah, You're that's right. Quoting <laughs> peanuts. <laughs> hey, Lucy wasn't wrong. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but it's uh, but yeah, no. I saw that is that is this film, and it's of course all. Set at the stroke of midnight, who doesn't love a good ghost story? The film is very important in Swedish cinema. This is a very realistic work in a cinema that was very much dominated at the time. 
by its national epics and folk tales. Mm -hmm. And so this is something of a departure from that. Uh, certainly still has a folktale base, but this is a very realistic movie. This is very unique uh, at the time and is really starting to break new ground in Swedish cinema. Pushing forward, that is going to influence other films, both in its special effect techniques and uh, the people involved in it. Many of them will go on to remain a major players, although... Uh, Shalsholm, I'm I, I am slaughtering his name again. The, our director here, uh, uh, Shastrom. Um, you know he will go on to be a player, and through through the rest of the silent era, uh, he will go back to theater though as talkies emerge, um, and and uh, work there. Uh, like I said, the the author whose book this is is one of the major players in Swedish fiction at the time. She's a Nobel Prize winner, so she continues to be important. Uh, the and many of the people in this will carry on Swedish influence into Hollywood mm. as Hollywood merges. Of course, like we already mentioned, me, uh, many of the people around this are real are connected, of course, to Garbo. Yeah, and um, and I do want to take a moment also here is um, here toward the end, uh, like a couple of the other movies that we've um, talked about. Um, we almost don't have this movie. This movie's from 1921. Um, a lot of how film was stored, uh, how it was um, uh, traded around the world, uh, led to a lot of corrupted uh, versions. It led to, uh, you know, and a lot of films, of course, are missing. We talked when we were talking about the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. The, uh, the actual oldest um, animated films, feature films, were by an Argentine animator, and we don't have them. Uh, they, they actually predate Prince Ahmed. Um, but we don't have them. And we almost don't, didn't have this movie, um, at least not in any way that we could watch today. Uh, the Swedish Film Institute um, is, uh, you know, uh, undertook a big project to try and save and restore um, older films, particularly from this this golden age of Swedish silent film. Um, and so when they started the project, um, they didn't have um, really anything. <laughs> um, what, what they all they had was um, a poor, uh, a few poor quality black and white prints. And often, and really, those were the American versions, and we already talked about how the American versions heavily edited down the movie to where they weren't really the movie that was everyone else saw, because again, they thought American audiences were stupid apparently, and they did not do well there uh, with um, keeping the film like it should be. But they were able to find uh, a couple incomplete prints. Um, one was a pure black and white uh, print that uh, had Swedish inner titles, uh, title cards. And then there was an English one that had color tint, uh, that had the color tinted effects with it and English uh, title cards. And they were able to, and the Swedish Film Institute was able to take these different versions uh, and 
kind of cobble together an actual full-length original intent uh, version of the film. Uh, and that was 1975 was when that project first started. Um, and different, there were different restorations. Uh, some were done in Germany. There was one done in Germany. Um, and then in the late 90s, uh, there was some more work done with the Swedish one. Um, and then finally, the one that we watched was uh, a digital scan so they, they took the film so this is further preserving it by getting into digital format uh, but this was the Swedish Film Institute partnering with the Criterion Collection uh, to get that done so uh, we've got it uh, and they've continued to work on the digital uh, restor uh, or the digital transfer and, and restoration uh, further uh, since then but that's something we, we need to remember these silent films a lot of the history behind it is you know, in some cases there, but for the grace of God, someone saw saw that this was something worth trying to save, and really did the legwork to try and save it. These movies didn't get to us by accident, and that's true. And that's been true of just about all the films we've watched this week. I think the uh, over the course of the last few weeks, the only one I think, the only two that I don't think had to have the restoration projects were, *Fan of the Opera* and *Battleship Potemkin*. Yeah. Uh, both which were preserved by, in part by the national governments. Uh, Fan, Fan, uh, Phantom of the Opera is at the Library of Congress. And of course, the and of course, the American studio system um, was built in a way that you know had their own libraries. They had their own arms. They weren't um, a lot of the American studio systems were designed not to lose their stuff. Yeah. Which is not to say there are not Ameri lost American films Correct. from this era. Uh, we'll certainly... But the big, but the big projects... Yeah, but cer yeah. certainly the ones that we have remember in popular culture are were preserved. Mm -hmm. uh, many that were important, perhaps were not, but this is... But no, you're, you're absolutely correct. A lot of films that were important that And time of course the Soviet and, government was... Well, they, they they had the resources to save everything exactly because they were the government uh, and you know that that film that film became a was an early propaganda tool and it was early an early mark of their of their credibility as a cultural force on the stage so they wanted yeah. to preserve it as well uh, but all the other films uh, especially you know uh, the work of uh, of a uh, lot of uh, Reininger, uh, her her work has been recovered. Mm -hmm. oftentimes despite how influential she was in early animation and i was she was mm -hmm. a huge force i mean she was making shows into, into the, the 70s, 70s yeah. for the bbc mm -hmm. and yet a lot of her her work has been a struggle to preserve and to uh rec recover so the bbc uh, is infamous for having yeah. actually a terrible storage system that's yeah. why we don't have uh, so much of doctor who <laughs> yeah, very much so true nosferatu of course was Nosferatu <laughs> was actually destroyed by a court, and so it was preserved. And but you're welcome for us stubborn Americans for saying no. We like this movie. We're keeping it. Well, a lot, a lot of people did. It wasn't just Americans, <laughs> but uh, it it got passed around. Uh, so you know, preservation is an important part of the story of silent film, and perhaps we will uh, come back to talk more in detail about that uh, when we return in the future. And I say in the future because this, of course, is the last of our six-episode season one. Uh, we're going to take at least January off, uh, and uh, we'll be back in the spring. Uh, at some point. At, so, uh, at some point. Uh, tentatively, we have talked about February, but we will keep you updated on our Twitter, 
uh, and elsewhere to uh, and on our podcast feeds and on Bryce's uh, websites and YouTube channels about when we will return. Bryce, where can they find you? All right. Well, um, you can find me at jbryceodom.com, but on social media, um, I'm on Facebook at j uh, j Bryce Odom on Instagram j Bryce Odom underscore author and a YouTube channel that's also j Bryce Odom underscore author um, and whenever we get to announcing season two we'll probably do the same thing we did this time around which was uh, on the YouTube channel we'll release a trailer uh, for our next season so make sure you like and subscribe over there on that channel follow me on the social media uh, and you can keep up with us all on here and also if you um, need a good book to read as the new year comes in because you didn't get one for Christmas, uh, go ahead and buy one on my website. Uh, again, jbryceodom.com. And of course you can uh, find me and our show on Twitter at silentgoldpod on Twitter and email us at silenceisgoldenpodcast at gmail.com. I've been Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. Thank you all for joining us for this first season of Silence is Golden, and we will see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.